Dr. Michael Moore is a medical doctor doing his PhD in the machine learning and computational biology lab at ETH Zurich. Some of his most interesting research looks at predicting sepsis using machine learning approaches. In case you're unfamiliar, sepsis is a life-threatening condition in which the body's natural defenses against an infection go into overdrive. Mortality from septic shock can be up to 50% and every minute counts. In fact, for every hour treatment is delayed, mortality increases by 7.6%. We started off by talking about a paper published in JAMA earlier this year. It assessed a popular sepsis prediction tool and found that it wasn't very good. It was delivering so many false positives that doctors would need to assess up to 109 patients flagged by the tool just to find one patient who was actually septic. In the JAMA paper that was published in June 2021, there was the external validation of the EPIC sepsis model. One of the big issues was that it was just notifying for a lot of patients. It was too sensitive. It would notify clinicians of up to 100 cases of potential sepsis for a clinician to just identify one actual case of it. So there's an issue with just like notification fatigue where people will be just getting all these alerts and there's just no way you can examine that many patients for sepsis. So it kind of becomes a bit useless and maybe even harmful in the sense that it, it, it's wasting your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I fully agree. So I think alarm fatigue is one of the biggest challenges um, when doing or trying to develop an early warning system. So I think it's important to deeply think about alarm fatigue from the very early uh, stage of the project. Because just having a, a retrospective data set and playing around with it is a very different uh, thing from actually trying to deploy it and, and, and to have, have it do something meaningful. So some projects uh, or papers that I've also been involved with um, try to address um, the, the alarm fatigue with, with, in a rather hacky way where we just say, if an alarm is raised, you just silence this, this model. So it cannot raise an other alarm for maybe eight hours or something. This is a really hacky way. A slightly more principled way that we've been working on is to, to just say in, in the entire evaluation of the model, just never raise another alarm after you have raised, raised, raised an alarm. This sounds also hacky, of course, but at least it achieves that you can never um, call more than one false positive. So if you have a patient that will never develop sepsis, if the model has raised an alarm, it can never raise an alarm again. Now you might say, well, it might be that the sepsis will happen two days after, and that would be a problem. But um, yeah, I think every strategy has its ups and downs. So, so I think this alarm fatigue is it, it's a it's a big challenge, and it's not extremely easy to to address. So another thing I kind of read from your preprint was that in general, in terms of the sepsis prediction models and the data they're using, it was something like fifty percent of the literature at the moment is is using one data set, which I think is the Mimic data set, which is a US data set um, of, I, I believe, ICU patients. Now that sounds like a problem as well. Absolutely. So so the problem, <laughs> so it depends a bit on who, who you ask. So this systematic review that we wrote, I think we arrived at roughly 50%, but there was an other review on sepsis prediction, uh, which found, I think, even a larger number, maybe 60%, but um, I'm, yeah, I think the ballpark is, is maybe around 50-ish. And it, yeah, it just shows that the Mimic dataset is really compared to other datasets of high quality, um, and it's really easily accessible. Um, and this has the big advantage that many, many, many research projects has, have been made possible only due to this 
data set, which is amazing, but it also has the downside that many, many papers are based on one data set. Although there are also other data sets, many of them are typically not available. So it's really hard to try to evaluate or externally validate your, your new model on any other data sets. You, you really need the connection to, the, to those hospitals or to those centers. And if, if you just start with a raw data set, which just, it, it might take another year or two to, to get um, everything together, to map all the data, all the variables, to implement the sepsis label, which is also a huge effort. So I think the external validation will always be a problem in sepsis prediction because it's just a huge effort to, to harmonize and to, to, um, yeah, to map a new data set into your, into your pipeline. So this kind of motivated us to say, let's take all the big public ICU data sets there are, um, which, I mean, there was four to five, depending on how you count. And we pulled all of this data, harmonized it, tried as good as possible to map all the variables. And then we created one sepsis implementation and um, could train models on one data set and evaluate on the next and play around with it in all those directions. So that's, yeah, we were really happy about this effort, but it was, it took us several years to do that, but I think it will now, and the work is now on the review, but once it's out, I think it will be really, it could really help the, the field in, in that it will make drastically easier to, to externally validate your model. So you notice this problem that, you know, more than half of the uh, research in this field is using just this one mimic data set. And then you go out, you find um, five different data sets, you clean them, you filter them, you harmonize them, you put them together, and then you release them to the world. Can you talk through um, the process behind that? Like, what does cleaning, filtering, harmonizing mean? How difficult is it to do um, to someone who doesn't really understand any of the process? That's a, that's a good point. So there's actually always several layers of, of filtering and cleaning that can take place. Um, if you really start with the collection, that's what we also do in Switzerland in a different project, then of course, you're much deeper into the woods. So <laughs> if you're really starting with the data collection and you have different centers, then you this, this can become very uh, difficult and you need expertise from very different fields uh, all in one place. Um, but here in our situation, we had the, the chance to be working with already published databases, which have been already curated to some degree. I mean, Mimic has been, has been highly curated, right? Um, the EICU dataset also. So I think if, so we, I just want to clarify, it's always easier if some people have already thought of many things like anonymization and, and just making sure that there's, uh, no big errors in the data. I mean, of course, there's there's always some remaining errors in artifacts, but just I need to clarify that we already started, uh, or we uh, we walk on the uh, shoulders of giants, or how this saying is going. But in this specific project, um, so the first thing, of course, is if you if you try to include a new data set, you always need to know what is what. So if we want to use um, pulse oximetry measurements from this data set. How, how does it relate to, to the measurements that we have in this other data set? Is the distribution similar? Is there some bias? Is it just the mean is higher? Could it be due to a different population? Could it be due to a different device measuring? So you need to be 
for, for almost each variable, and it might be 50 variables, it might be 100 variables, it might be 2,000 variables, depending on how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole. But if you really want to be, if, if you really want to harmonize and clean it, you really need to think deeply about each and every variable. For instance, blood pressure measurements. You need to think about, okay, what devices have been used? Um, is there like a systematic difference between the devices? Is this difference hurtful or even useful? Um, Usually it's hurtful <laughs> if there's uh, drastic differences. So, so there's that. Then, of course, there's units. So it, it happens that, especially when you um, change between um, European and American data sets, it happens that you might have different units, so temperature, for instance. And this is also relevant to, to, to map accordingly. And, and there's other things, like there's outlier measurements where you're quite sure that People are not 200 meters tall and, or, or, or weigh 500 gram or so. So, so there's, there's many, yeah, things to, to consider. And, and oftentimes you don't, you don't have a recipe to find all the issues top down. So this is really a bottom up task, in my opinion. You need to sort, sort it out on the way, more or less. But it, it takes a huge time, like, uh, amount of time, of course. If, you know, in your case, when you've got five different data sets, you start noticing some, you know, bigger trends or some bigger issues with one of your data sets. So say you notice that, uh, you know, a lot of these patients are, are very elderly or they belong to a certain race or they're more of a certain gender mm -hmm. or their mm -hmm. blood pressure mm -hmm. is 10 times a, or a lot higher. How do you kind of deal with that? Is it the case of just, do you just drop those values out of your kind of pool together data set or are there other methods you can use? This is a very uh, difficult question because, I mean, ideally one would find other methods uh, to, to deal with that other than just dropping it out. But the problem is, this is, a, I think it can be treated as a very deep statistical problem that you might spend an entire PhD around just just this specific problem. This is, it's very nested. So the entire thing is, it's very nested. And at each, each point or on each leaf of this tree, you need to decide, will I spend a year on this or not? <laughs> so if you're not a hundred people, or if you're not a huge company who has like just resources without end, uh, but if you're uh, like a team of researchers and you need to, you need to really carefully think about, will I spend a year on, on, on this specific problem now or not? So, and, in that spirit, I think we had to sometimes just crop away certain patients or, or, or just uh, drop certain uh, centers, for instance, in the EICU data set. There are some data sets that, yeah, don't really, some hospital centers that don't really report many variables of interest for our specific uh, sepsis study. So we just saw that um, the sepsis prevalence was extremely low in certain hospitals because we just didn't have the data that was required to to um, fulfill the criteria. And then we just had to threshold it out and, and just say some hospitals had to be dropped because they would probably carry many false negative sepsis patients. This is, of course, nasty because you introduce some kind of selection bias. And yeah, so th this is always a problem. But I think, it, yeah, it's... It's really, <laughs> I think it's good to think about those things, but it's also very easy to, to yeah, spend a lot of time on it. And in the end, you kind of have to bite some bullets, yeah, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs>
but there's no free lunch for that. And again, just generally speaking, I can imagine that in some of your data sets or from some of the centers, you might have great data in terms of you might have hourly observations, vital signs, whatever. And then in another data set, it might not be as good. You might have a lot more missing data. You might have four hourly, say. Do you always have to kind of cater to the lowest denominator in the sense that do you, when you're harmonizing and putting everything together, do you have to think if we want this all to work and all this data to pull together, we have to cater to the bottom? Or are there other ways you can kind of deal with those discrepancies? This again is a really interesting problem that you also easily could spend years uh, alone on that. So in, in the um, in an earlier paper, so um, some course authors of this preprint um, and some other um, collaborators, we worked on an early um, warning system for circulatory failure, which was published in Nature Medicine last year. And, and there uh, we observed that if you train on a high resolution data set, where you have only like five minute intervals, and you try to externally validate it on a data set which has lower resolution, that was MIMIC, um, it doesn't work as nicely as if you trained on the high resolution data set, but you only used the resolution that Mimic has, which is roughly an hour um, for many variables. So just judging from that, I thought it would be probably a smart first start to just take the common denominator of one hour, one hourly measurements. But I think for internally boosting a performance in a high resolution data set, it will be beneficial nevertheless, to use higher resolution. But it's in, in this preprint now, we just said we will stick to an hourly resolution just to, to get things going. Because otherwise, we, you always have this combinatorial <laughs> grid of things that you can test and try, right? And here, this was also a simplifying first step. You just say, um, we know it can work better if you even use higher resolution for certain variables, but we just start with one hourly um, resolution for all data sets. And then we have a common ground to start with. When you have this model, you see it's performing well. What is the process of working out how it was making those decisions and then kind of extracting uh, knowledge and learnings that then clinicians can use in their own practice? Is it something that's quite easy to do or is it something that's quite challenging? I think this is relevant, but it's also quite challenging because currently, I mean, in the very early days, I think. The typical way to extract information was to do some kind of uh, feature ranking or feature selections um, processes with, with which you could identify, okay, or I mean, you could still do it. But if you train a logistic regression model, you can also see which features have the highest uh, um, relevance in terms of the magnitude of, of the parameters. So this is still works. I think nowadays with deep learning, many people rely more or more looking at explainability methods where you try, I mean, especially in imaging uh, techniques, it's really interesting to see where is the model looking at uh, on a CT image. For instance, here it's a bit different with the time series, but you also can, of course, um, work on explainability methods here. I think it's, it's challenging to really take a very solid takeaway from it. I think it's it, it's it's good to suggest you something, so it's more hypothesis generating. Um, other, I don't think you can like prove anything with it. it. It's not for me. It's usually not solid evidence, but it's more speculative, and it's more about like ah, interesting. I see the um, systolic blood pressure when it goes down. The model thinks mm, maybe this uh, 
hemodynamic instable patient and raises the prediction score. But yeah, I, I think explanations are interesting, but I'm always very careful with them um, in the sense that it's easy to, so, so there's just so many things going on at the same time. And, and it's, of course, a, a big wish to, to have explainable predictions. But I think in many cases, which we start with a black box. And yeah, it, I think it's really difficult to, to, to open the box in, in a way that, that you can really be certain that you, that you understand what's going on. So I think having the black box in there a bit, is, it's really hard to get it completely out. If we're thinking about the future of ML and sepsis prediction, can you see a future, well, or can you see in the near future a situation in which these kinds of tools become so good at predicting sepsis that a patient developing sepsis in a hospital becomes a never event in the sense that it, it should just never happen because these tools are just so good at pricking it out. And if it does happen, then that's a, that's a big failure from the, the hospital team. Like, do, do you see us getting to that level? That would be amazing, actually. So let's say my ML self would say, yes, of course. My uh, uh, medical self would say, well, this is not really possible because in many cases, sepsis starts before entering the hospital or, or it's while the patient is in the emergency department, maybe. And we only work with ICU data because it's the highest resolution, highest, also with MIMIC, highest available. Um, highest availability data um, but yeah in the end if you really want to solve sepsis it might be that you need mobile tracking of, of, of your patients so <laughs> in that sense it might take more than a few years until we are at this point but yeah it would be ideal to be very honest i'm not sure if you if you identified sepsis extremely early i'm not sure what the percentage of, of breakthrough sepsis would be if, if you want to call it that so i think this still had to be studied right but i'm i'm certain that it will become better so so the the big problem is to have this 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 health crisis of, of sepsis death and sepsis morbidity which is just exceeding um yeah and and this i think we need to reduce this i hope will be achieved but i think getting so far to say that it's 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 a failure if, if sepsis appears yeah, maybe that's the music of the future. I, I, don't, I don't know. Are there any kind of exciting preprints or other developments happening in the field of sepsis prediction? Like what is happening over the next few years? Um, so something that I've seen quite, um, I think several papers out now is many people are interested in trying to subtype sepsis in terms of performing clustering on, on, on various types of, of multi-model data, be it time series data or molecular um, properties. Um, so I think, I hope that there will be some interesting advancements in, in, in the direction of to um, better understanding how exactly um, sepsis can be subtyped into different groups of patients that behave very similarly and that might respond to certain treatments, which could really like lead to a more personalized um, treatment or personalized version of sepsis management. So I think this will be really interesting for the future. And otherwise, uh, we just need to get over the crisis of, of having poor external validation. So we really need models that are able to adapt to a new distribution. And this is fundamentally different, a difficult problem in ML for Health, because 
Some say that ML is essentially all about fitting a distribution. And if you want to predict the class given data, then you're fitting a conditional distribution, but you're, in essence, you're still fitting a distribution. And if the distribution shifts because you're observing a new data set, new um, cohort with other ethnicities, we have other policies of the, of the doctors, you have other um, devices that are measuring uh, and reporting values slightly differently, your model needs to see that and adapt to it. And I think this is a big challenge um, that is also offering quite some interesting, it's, it's a big challenge that offers opportunities for method development also. So that's what's really exciting. If you're approaching it from the ML side, you might say, well, either you're doing theoretical ML or you're doing applied, but actually it's not the, in my opinion, applied ML is where you really see where current models are falling short and where you really see what needs to be done in the future. And I think, so method development, in my opinion, should be inspired by the problems we encounter in the practical applications. Another kind of potential issue with the field is in terms of, again, going back to the data sets. I don't know of any public, easily accessible, robust data sets for sepsis or ICU patients from any kind of less economically developed countries. I think the ones that I've come across are all, is it US, Swiss, Netherlands, that kind of thing. Yes. Why is it so difficult or what are the challenges of India, China, other countries and their ICUs putting out these data sets? Is it kind of a problem that this data isn't being recorded in their ICUs? Is it a problem with kind of uh, the ethics and the bureaucracy? Like, I appreciate obviously you're, you're not an expert in this particular problem, but like, what, what are your kind of thoughts on that? So as you said, I'm definitely not an expert on that. And I, I could also not say what exactly should, would be the problem for individual places. I think a problem which is at least rooted in much more deeply in, in the medical profession is that um, in general, if you go someplace, you, you, ha you have a hospital that collects data. So a big problem that I usually see why it's really hard to make this data available is that the clinicians and the study directors and so on, they, they think that the data belongs to them and it's their gold mine that they need to protect from intruders that could steal insights from it. And I so I think a problem which is might be a, a prevalent everywhere around the world is that the medical profession is very, uh, how should I say, so th that this big collaborative effort is sometimes missing out and too much of of the studies, too many studies, in my opinion, that work like we build a gold mine and once you have the gold mine, we try to mine from it as, as much as possible. And we have to make sure that no one else can benefit from it, except through the study that we publish in New England Journal in the end. You know what I mean? So, so I think this, is, this might be a reason why um, in general, getting access to patient data is really uh, a slow process and, and a bureaucratic process. And, and there's many players and stakeholders that don't have an interest in making it publicly available and making, and, and I think this is for sure one problem, but this is not necessarily the problem why we currently observe a big bias in, in the data sets that are available. So I honestly don't know what exactly are, are key reasons for for this for this bias but i i mean already in preprint we, we mentioned that, that we need to get a more inclusive and more global representation of patients in those data sets and otherwise it will never have the validity and um, to develop like 
deploy models in, in, in countries that are not different from, from the cohorts that we were trained. If in the data set that you put together, you were keen to get data from, you know, a country that, that, that didn't have these kind of public data sets out already, can you just give me an idea of how difficult that process would be? So you can pick any country, but say India, China, whatever. How big of a task is that to find some ICUs there, collect this data, get the necessary permissions and put it out and put it into your data set? Like, is that a huge task to do? So if there's no research database already, but you really have to collect it from the, like the reports, databases and so on, I would say it's a huge effort, especially if it's... So usually you need a big team of, of people to, to spend, I don't know, months or, or more. Because, I mean, already for, for this one um, Dutch data set that we used now in, in our study, even though it's already quite clean and, and readily available in nice uh, relational database format, which is almost the end of the story, right? Even there, it was kind of, there were some bridges and, and some translations needed because some um, terms in, in this database were in Dutch and you need to translate it and, and make sure that they talk about the same thing that you're talking about. So I think if you really now want to just go to India or, or just some other place and try to integrate their ICU data or their hospital data into your um, data set, I think it's, it's a huge effort. And there's currently not enough incentives to do this. This is, is, is also a big problem. So my dream is that in 10 years or in 20 years, we will have ICU data sets that are like gathering data from all over the globe where there's African countries included and, and some Asian countries and so on. Um, but yeah, it will be a long and painful way <laughs> until we arrive there. So throughout your career, have there been any habits or ways you've approached things that have been helpful for you? Um, yes, of course. So one weird habit that I had during my studies was to just try to really follow my curiosity. And even if it had absolutely nothing to do with what I needed to know at this very moment, um, just follow leads. So for instance, during my uh, bachelor studies, even though I was studying medicine, I, in my um, private time, I very often read about mathematics in, 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 in like some cool books. And some friends were always like, why are you doing this? And it doesn't help you in any way. But for me, it was just really inspiring and it's really trying to widen my horizon. And, and later on, it was really helpful to, to have read some of those things because it was much easier for me to get into the, on the track of machine learning. And so I, I, I really think it's extremely important to learn and to continue learning and, and to, and especially for, for the medical profession, in my opinion, if you're interested in the digital and the technological aspects of, of like early warning systems or any kinds of um, ML applications, I think it's really important to, to extend your curriculum and then take initiative and try to learn things that are not necessarily meant for your ears. <laughs> and yeah, so this is what I personally would say. I, I think there's many good books, of course, out there. And um, for sure, there's also a good podcast. I'm not totally sure. I mean, of course, this podcast <laughs> is a good first start. But so if I could redo or like start again with the medical studies, then I would just try to try again to be open-minded in, in terms of following up on, 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 on interesting topics that might not be very 
typical for medicine, but that might be more technical or more mathematical or, or more just to, to the branch out. I think this is important because especially during the medical studies, I quite often got the feeling of being almost forced through a pipe where you just need to, you're like a worm being pushed through a pipe and you need to know this and you're afraid that you forget the important things that might co cost the life of the patient. But I think this is not what studies is about, in my opinion. It should also be be able to be curious and, and, and yeah, explore. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.